Well, hey, it is uh, good to be back, and if you're back with us, and maybe you were out last weekend, I am not Jeremy, all right? So it's, uh, but uh, I do honor, you know, you give honor where honor is due. You have a great pastor. Like, I just want to be really, really clear. You have a great pastor. There's, uh, they said post-COVID, three out of ten pastors were wanting to quit. And you've got one that has not only stuck through it, but has come out the other side and continues to come out the other side. He's thoughtful, he's intentional, and he's a good friend to me. And so I'm just, uh, I'm grateful and honored uh, to be here this morning. Let me, uh, let me begin by reading 1 Corinthians 9, where we talk about the final uh, fruit here. 1 Corinthians 9, beginning in verse 24. Paul writes this, do you not know that in, uh, that in a race all the runners run, but only one receives the prize, so run that you may obtain it. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. They do it to receive a perishable wreath, but we an imperishable. So I do not run aimlessly, I do not box as one beating the air, but I discipline my body and keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself should be disqualified. Let me pray for us, and then we're going to jump in. <clears throat> Father, thanks again for the gift of today. Thanks for your word that really does have the ability to bring life And uh, as many of us have experienced words in our life that honestly felt a little bit like death. And so, God, I pray that in this time today, whether it's word uh, in song or whether it's word in what's about to be preached or whether it's a word from someone else in the room, uh, may it just breathe life into us. And so, Father, we pray this uh, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, there was a guy named Matt Emmons, and Matt Emmons was an air rifle shooter in the 2004 Olympics that were held in Athens, Greece. I didn't even know air rifle shooting was an Olympic sport, okay? But, uh, but he was an air rifle shooter, and all he needed to get gold was to simply hit the target. That's all he needed. So he just needed a mediocre score to get the gold. So he aims. Now, what what Matt Emmons had learned to do is he learned to slow his heartbeat down enough where he would pull the trigger in between heartbeats. So he's got his eye on the bullseye. He aims. The heartbeat is slowed down. He pulls the trigger. Boom, bullseye. The problem was he hit the target the next lane over. He went from first to eighth place, not getting a gold in 2004. Now, before you feel really sorry for him, he did get to meet his wife because he had a woman that came over, put her arm around him, and then years later, they would get married, all right? But uh, I think a lot of times we think that we have our eyes set on the target, and we think that we've hit bullseye but we've hit the wrong target. Better yet, some of us are simply aiming at the wrong target. We are aiming at the so-called good life, but we have missed the spirit-animating life that God promises. You see, our hearts are made for something ultimate. They're made for a target. The question is, what is it that's getting our attention? 
Now, we have peeled away at the fruit of the Spirit the last however many weeks, and there is an integrity to this collective fruit. See, you will know a tree by its fruit is what Jesus says. Love is the starting point. Love and joy go together, and we will talk about that through this sermon. If love is the start, then joy is the finish line. This is coming out of Galatians 5. Peace and patience go together. You see, peace is the confidence and rest and the wisdom of God with us in any and every circumstance. Patience is the ability to take life as it hits, and sometimes it does indeed hit hard, but we trust that God is with us in those moments. Kindness, goodness, and gentleness go together. You see, there is a humility that links these fruits together, a self-forgetfulness that can happen because we know that we are loved first by the Creator. You recognize the kindness, goodness, and gentleness of the Lord that's been extended to you, so therefore you and I extend those to others. Faithfulness, as we discussed last week, is a loyal commitment despite how we may feel in the moment. And if you are growing in all eight of these, well, then you are certainly growing in self-control. So what is self-control? Let me keep it very simple. We say no when we want to say yes. We say no when we want to say yes. When I discovered that I needed more self-control is when we introduced Boone, the Bernadoodle, to our family. Against my wishes, I must know. Because when we started raising humans, I did not want to have dogs. All right? Let me be clear. I got three kiddos. I did not want to introduce a dog to the family. The name Boone actually means blessing. And let me just tell you, that is a contradiction. He ate his own poop the first four weeks of his life. I'm reminded every time that I have to grow in, in, uh, in self-control because no one can handle the 70-pound Bernadoodle at just nine months old except me. So when I hear the words, Boone needs to go out again, I need self-control. You know what makes this even more difficult is I myself have become attached to this creature. All right? I said in an ER, truly, three weeks ago because he had to have emergency surgery. And guess what decision I was left with? He was going to die in the next 30 minutes because of a twisted stomach. And thousands of dollars later, keep in mind, I do not have a job. Thousands of dollars later, I give life to what was being referred to as the patient. All right? So this is... This is, just, uh, this is just the life right now. But what is often linked with self-control is this word addiction. Addiction is we say yes when we need to say no and catch this and we can't stop. You see how that works. When we think of addiction, we often think of drugs, alcohol, or sex, but addiction is certainly not limited to just those vices. Many of us find ourselves overeating, overspending, or gambling, or overexercising, unable to control our tongue, emotions, our time, and our thoughts. Sadly, our culture has very few models of self-control. In the beginning of the Gospel of John, Jesus asked the very first question to two disciples beginning to follow him. Do you know what the question was? 
What do you want? What do you want? I mean, this existential question has everything to do with desire. Where do we fix our attention? Our desires are the basis of our decisions. Our desires are the basis of our decisions. You talk to any addict, he or she will tell you the addiction does not simply stop by trying harder. You see, you can actually change the behavior without ever touching the character. Paul and Jesus, for that matter, have never been about behavioral modification, but instead a transformed character. You see, Paul is not an athlete himself, but in this context, in this letter to the Corinthians, he is an exasperated pastor. Sorry about that. The Corinthians have replaced the gospel of Jesus Christ for another gospel of the good life, a life of no restraint. Follow your heart is the mantra in our cultural moment. That is great if... The heart is pure. But again, there is a natural pull towards the self and not the other that exists in the human heart that Paul knew could not be ignored. And this comes not through willpower, but through a power outside oneself and yet inside the follower of Jesus that we know to be the Spirit. So I want to discuss three questions based on Paul's teaching here in 1 Corinthians 9. Number one, what is the problem? Number two, what is the prize? And number three, what are practices that will ultimately help us become a people marked by self-control? Paul is one of the four or five most brilliant men to walk the earth. He is way ahead of his time on how the mind actually works and what leads to the transformation of character. You see, to illustrate self-control, he uses the athlete competing in the games for the prize. This was something that was very normal in Corinth at this time. The difference between good and bad teams is good teams play to win with their eyes fixed on the prize, and bad teams simply play not to lose. And you see this in competition a lot. You see, it is for the prize that the athlete practices self-control. And in this case, Paul is putting himself in place of the athlete. He's just spent chapters before telling them in this letter that he is who God says he is. He has been entrusted with this good news to bring to this community and catch this. He's worthy not because of some resume that he has. He's worthy because of what God says of him and the transformation that had taken place in his life. And he says this, the prize is the good news, is the gospel that I have to preach. But he says every athlete exercises self-control in all things because of that prize. You see, Paul knew that our desires direct our decisions, and our decisions oftentimes direct our destinations. So number one, what is the problem? There's not a single person on planet Earth that can watch the 6 o'clock news and say there is not a problem. 
There's a problem. Everybody agrees on that. When it comes to desire, the problem is not about disqualification as much as it is about, catch this, distraction. Something else is trying to get our attention. Leslie Jameson, in her incisively honest memoir, The Recovering, cuts the reader open, finding at the very core of one's heart is a deep desire to be loved. This is one of the better books I've read in the last five years. Addiction may be the ghost that haunts the Western world. Leslie described her desire to write something original, and yet she realized that what that was impossible because addiction really is the human condition. She writes this, addiction is always a story that has already been told because it inevitably repeats itself. Because it grinds down ultimately for everyone to the same demolished and reductive and recycled core. Desire, use, repeat. Desire, use, repeat. You see, Leslie is right. This is not original. This unoriginal baseline story appears on just page two of the Bible. Desire, use, repeat repeat would sadly be the narrative throughout the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. The first couple were given just one restriction. Do not eat the fruit of the tree of good and evil. You see, we were never designed to live without limits. Eden had limits. Just like every garden, if you have a garden, it has boundaries. Some of you put a fence around those boundaries. Why? So the deer don't eat. So you set these limits, and yet the fruit grows within those limits. Some philosophers and others wanted to find freedom as the absence of restraint. But the first humans were distracted by the deceitful enemy in the form of a servant that simply planted a distracting idea from what the loving God had given the first couple. There's 99 other trees that you can eat from. Don't eat of the one. And this first couple desired to play God rather than trust God. I get to define what is good and what is evil. We could simply ask some living this life of no restraint. How is it working out for you? And please don't miss... This, the desire started as a deceitful idea that led to a decision that then led to a destination, and in this first couple's case, exiled from the garden. You see, there really was a world outside the garden. Desire, use, repeat. Now, you would think Paul would refrain from using the fruit analogy in the New Testament. But it was less about the fruit and more about desire. You see, it's this flesh operating system that we discussed last week, this natural pull towards oneself. It is not coincidental that one of the Greek words for sin means to simply miss the target. There is a restlessness that comes with any addiction. If Leslie is right that addiction really is the human condition, then few of us really understand what it means to truly rest. If I were to ask the question, how many of you struggle with anxiety or depression in this room? I wonder how many of you would raise your hands. 
Now, if I were to ask teenagers this question, statistics tell us that three out of four teenagers struggle with depression or anxiety. One out of four, this is a recent statistic, one out of four have thought about suicide. One out of four. I can almost guarantee if teenagers are struggling with that, a parent is struggling with that, or some parental presence is struggling with that. We live in an anxious anxious age. This collective fruit Paul is discussing, please hear this, become the seeds of resistance in an anxious world. It's sadly more normal to be anxious than it is to be non-anxious. But you know when you're around a non-anxious person. I was eight years old when my grandfather came to visit. He got down on one knee and he handed me a $5 bill. And, and he told me that I needed to become the man of the house, eight years old. Now, you may ask, why did that plant a seed of anxiety in you? Well, two weeks prior to that, my dad got down on one knee, told me he was going to visit his brother in California. He would be back in a few weeks. I remember watching him back out of the long gravel driveway there in central Indiana, and that was the last time that I saw my father. My father never came back, lived a life of adultery and just many other things and just found the responsibility of two kiddos at the time, specifically me in this case as an eight-year-old that remembers just too much. And so when my grandfather shows up two weeks later, this planted a seed of anxiety that I would not have called it that then, but really surfaced in the sixth grade where I was consumed with worry. And thinking because I was trying on one end to be a man that I didn't even have the opportunity just to be a boy. And so this restlessness I can really relate to when I started having kids. I was trying to build an identity of being a father out of everything that my father wasn't, which is no way to build an identity. And so I was trying to do this. I was trying to perfect the imperfection of my father until I finally realized I can't do this. I am not perfect. And so this restlessness I can really relate to because being a good dad has not come by trying harder or working harder. It's come from something outside myself and yet inside myself. What do you want? You see, Jesus is still asking the same question 2,000 years later. Jesus and Christianity care deeply for our emotions, our desires. Christianity is not seeking to detach us from circumstances or desire by simply becoming self-sufficient to resist being overcome by emotion or circumstances like the classic philosophy of Stoicism that's making a bit of a comeback right now or even Buddhism and what they seek to teach. You see, but instead, Jesus and Christianity seek to discipline our desires. You see, Jesus shows emotion. We see moments of anxiety. We see him weeping at the friend that has just died. 
This is what we see. We see this throughout the scriptures. We worship a God, please hear me, that displays emotion. So he does not detach himself from this. But rather than place self-sufficiency at the center, which is the flesh operating system, we instead fix our attention on the only all-sufficient being, God himself. And it is his animating spirit within us that becomes our new operating system, helping us fix our attention on the real prize that's in front of us. The prize is what disciplines our desires. Every athlete exercises self-control in all things. Someone once asked the late Christian writer Dallas Willard, if he could describe Jesus in one word, what would it be? And he paused for a moment, and then he simply said, relaxed. Relaxed. You see, if the problem is distraction. And the question becomes, what is the prize? Well, Augustine, the fourth century bishop, knew something that modern philosophy and science is just catching up to. The opposite of restlessness or anxiety, catch this, is joy. And Augustine lived a life of no restraint, as you can read in his literary classic memoir, Confessions. So what do we want? We want joy whether we can articulate it or not. Joy came in the form of this non-anxious presence, God with us in Jesus 2,000 years ago. Joy is I delight in him and he delights in me. As the biblical authors write throughout the scriptures, his face shines upon us. This is seen throughout the scriptures. The psalmist will write over and over again, please don't do what? Don't turn your face away from me. We need to be around people in person, marked by shared struggle in the human condition, helping us become a people of joy. Listen, you all, you do it every week, but this is why the meet and greet matters at the beginning of the service. You may be the only smile that someone sees. You may be the only embrace that someone gets in a single week. It may be the only hand that is shaken where someone looks you in the eyes, asks you how you're doing, and catch this, they even wait to listen to what you say. It makes a difference. It becomes the healing salve to someone else's wound. We were never intended to live this life alone. This is why Paul uses the image of an orchard. We need to be around others that display this fruit. Even God himself says, the first page of the Bible, it is not what? It is not good for man to be alone. He is in community, therefore we are to be in community. This is why recovery groups matter. You are not the only one living this unoriginal story, as Leslie Jameson writes. Listen how she describes the AA meeting. The meeting itself, she recalls, was just a bunch of strangers gathered around a huge wooden table, past a kitchen, tracked with footprints, old linoleum curling upwards at the edges of the room. People smiled, catch this, like they were glad to see me almost like they'd been expecting me to come. 
No matter how long you sit in the car, somebody is waiting in that wooden building. I think what happens for a lot of folks is they are desperately looking for something their hearts long for, but they are aiming at the wrong target. You see, they find pieces of it in different philosophies, even other religions, some TikTok influencer, or some celebrity Insta reel. What do you want? When Mark 10, we meet a man named Bartimaeus. And Bartimaeus, as far as we know, was born blind. He's been blind from birth. And he's this blind beggar on the side of the street. And I picture the homeless person in downtown Louisville among the lunch crowd. And it's just the streets are busy. But you hear that person louder than ever yelling Jesus of Nazareth. And that was the case in this story. That they could hear this man above what's called the large crowd there in the gospel. And Jesus has this man's undivided attention and the man can't even see him. And Jesus stops and he looks at his disciples and he says, call him. And it says the man sprang up and came to Jesus. And Jesus asked this question, what do you want? But he makes it more personal. What do you want me to do for you? And he says, recover my sight. Recover my sight. And Jesus said to him, go your way. Your faith has made you well. And immediately he recovered his sight and followed him on the way. I love that on the way piece because we are a people that are marked by being on the way. We don't have this figured out. This is on the way. What do you want me to do for you? It was my junior year of high school. And I got to spend that year with my grandfather, the same one that gave me that $5 bill. And the reason I spent that entire year with my grandfather was because he was battling stomach cancer. And the healing that we were praying for was not coming. And so in the final weeks, months, he was able to spend in our home because my mom was a registered nurse and hospice had come in. And so we got to take care of my grandfather in the home. But the pain was so severe that he was on morphine and he was, he had a, um, uh, was in a medical-induced coma. And so I remember walking by his room several days and I would just see him in just a peaceful sleep. But there was one particular day I was on my way to work and I went by his room and he came too. And he raised his hand. The nurse came over and said, your grandfather wants to say something to you. So I got in the room. He had enough breath enough strength to where he could whisper to me to just get down and put my ear to his lips. And this is what he said to me verbatim. Chad, I love you and I am so proud of you. And he went to sleep and passed away the next night. That was a game changer for me. That was when I began to really follow this man, Jesus. 
Because there was a healing in those words that I myself couldn't even articulate at the time. Those words were a healing salve to a moment, to a moment that was redeemed when I was eight years old and he handed me a $5 bill telling me to become something I had no idea what that even meant to become. And it was as if the words of the Father was just saying, I got you. I see you. The people of God are a beautiful orchard that grow this kind of fruit in the Spirit. This fruit serves as a holy contradiction in a malaise of anxiety and restlessness. We become the non-anxious presence in a world that is haunted by this ghost. But like Bartimaeus, we follow Jesus on the way. We too must recover our sight, fixing our eyes on the prize. We have not arrived until Jesus returns to make all things new or what he calls the new creation. And catch this, this is what Paul will write elsewhere, that we are to be the first fruits of the new creation here and now. Your life should be a contradiction to the people around you, whether it be in your workplace, your school, on the playground, in the backyard, wherever it may be to make them stop and say, I want more of that. I want more of that. Augustine would write, our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. You see, joy is the fuel by which we endure. So may I give just a few pastoral practices to end this time together that help us become these kinds of people. Our desires direct our disciplines. It is honestly really simple. Prayer and communion are two practices I want to talk very briefly on. Prayer is like breathing for me. And prayer is to be the respiratory system for the church. Prayer is first listening and then talking. Prayer is honestly where I believe the church has missed the target. I think there are a lot of churches that believe in belief, but few actually practice becoming a people of prayer that interact with a living, personal God. We bring the wood, He brings the fire. Let me tell you a very simple prayer I began praying years ago. Holy Spirit, where are you at work? And can I join you there? And that really set me off into a journey of some family of origin stuff, a history of addiction, a history of suppressing things and medicating. That's what this journey led me in, but I can tell you, it has brought a healing that I have never experienced before. Here's what I've learned. With most addiction or addictive behavior, it is something that lies beneath the surface, just like I mentioned. Some suppressed trauma, history of addiction within your family of origin, past or present abuse, or some lie that we were told at a young age. The Bible speaks over and over again of the fathers and mothers, the sins of the fathers and mothers being passed down to the third and fourth generation. I come from this history, a history of addiction, depression, and anxiety, generation after generation after generation. You've seen the relay race at the Olympics, typically a team of three or four racing against another team, right? 
You know what the one thing they have to constantly practice? It may surprise you. It's not running around the track. It's the exchange of the baton to the next runner. And some of us come from a family of origin where we have been handed a baton that has been broken. And we need to replace that baton with something new before we hand it down to the next generation. God longs to stop the cycle of sin. He longs to stop the restlessness. When I began this healing journey about three years ago, I was a person who prayed. But through this, I am becoming a person of prayer. And they're two very different things. We sit on a very complex, massive power grid. You can't see the actual electricity, but at any point you can tap into the source. Please listen. Just because you can't see it doesn't make it any less real. But some of us, and sadly some churches, are sitting on an enormous power grid and refuse to tap into the power. It's like seeing a line of houses, and every house has its lights on except one because they refuse to tap into the power. And that's what we miss. Some of us are believing in belief rather than tapping into the healing power of the living personal God. If prayer is listening and talking, communion is first confession. Where have I missed the target? And then it's celebration of who God is and what he has done. Communion is our recovery. It's where we both confess with our lips that we have missed the target and celebrate the one who is looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith. Catch this, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and Jesus is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Joy was Jesus' fuel to endure the cross. And Jesus is seated at the right hand of God in human form, as the Bible tells us, a redeemed, resurrected human form interceding on our behalf. And please hear this. When you pray, he gets up out of his seat to listen to you. That's who he is. So the question What do you want me to do for you? This becomes your opportunity to name that in this time of communion. Do you know the two English words, healing and salvation? Do you know they share the same Greek word? So your salvation may just be your healing. And your healing may just be your salvation. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being good. Not just good, but perfect. Perfect.